This episode of the Impact Makers podcast is sponsored by Workplace from Meta. Everybody's talking about the metaverse these days, but Workplace from Meta is different. I mean, the clue's in the name, right? Workplace is a business communication tool that uses features like instant messaging and video calls to help people share information. Think Facebook before your company. It's part of Meta's vision for the future of work, a future in which your job isn't just something you do, but something you experience. A future in which we'll all feel more present, connected, and productive. Start your journey into the future of work at workplace.com forward slash future. Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Whether the topic is the increased demand for flexible work, the great resignation, or something called quiet quitting, the common theme in all of these areas impacting the workplace today is a need to increase our focus on supporting employee well-being and mental health. To explore this topic further and to understand how we as leaders can take action to positively impact these critical areas, I have invited Desiree Pasquale, the Chief People Officer at Headspace Health, to join me today. As a trained psychologist, Desiree specialized in organizational and group dynamics with a focus on communication and conflict resolution. After a few years of clinical practice, she moved on to HR leadership roles at Kaiser Permanente, Carrot Inc., Ginger, and now Headspace Health. Informed by human-centered design principles and data-driven inquiry, Desiree is committed to curating joyful and resilient workplace cultures where employees are empowered to do their best work. She has a lot of great insights to share with us today, as well as practical action steps we can take as leaders to support our own mental health and that of our employees. Welcome, Desiree, to the Impact Makers podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you as well. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I've, I've kind of read a little bit about your bio in the introduction, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about you from your perspective. Yes, absolutely. Happy to. Uh, so my name is Desiree Pasquale. I am the Chief People Officer of Headspace Health. Fun fact, I'm also a trained therapist. So for for about a decade there or so, I've I've led what I call a double life, which is both uh, served as an HR leader in the corporate world as well as practiced as a therapist. Wow, I I read that in your your LinkedIn profile in your bio, but I'm I'm intrigued. I've heard people talk about you know maybe getting a psychology degree before and then going into human resources because that helped them to understand people. But as a trained therapist, how do you think that that has served you and the organizations that you've worked for as a chief people officer? Yeah, thank you for that question. So for one, um, Headspace Health is a digital mental health company. And as such, about 60 some percent of our staff are mental health care workers, people that provide mental health care to others. And the group ranges from mindfulness and meditation teachers to digital mental health coaches, therapists, and psychiatrists. And so in that context, it has certainly helped me be very acutely aware of the uh, emotional labor 
and weight that those frontline workers carry every day because I have lived it. I have uh, sat in their seat and I understand the complexity of of their jobs. So which is something that I think is very important, especially in digital mental health, which is an emerging field that really exploded onto our landscapes during the pandemic. The other thing, talking about non-mental health care workers, one of my co-workers said this to me recently. He said, Desiree, you never give advice. Instead, you asked me a series of questions to help me consider all of my options and the best course of action. And that is clearly an approach that we use in therapy, right? The therapist is not an advice giver, rather is, is, is a supportive role that helps people tap into the resources that they already have and bring forth you know, some of that inner wisdom and those questions. And um, so so I think that our staff appreciates that because what that does is it helps us stay really, really creative. And the world of work has changed so much over the last uh, three years or so, two and a half, three years, that simply looking to best practices is no longer the best approach because the world is so different that many of the best practices no longer apply. So I think that is one of the advantages of uh, approaching the people leader job with a mental health background. But anyone can do it. I want to be very clear about that. Anyone can do it. It's just something that comes natural to me by way of my training. Sure. I kind of I uh, had an experience after about 20 years as an HR leader and executive. I got an executive coaching certification and learned during that training that it really truly was about asking the questions. And I remember having a realization during my certification training that I'd always thought I was a good coach for people as an HR leader, but I realized that I gave a lot of advice. Um, so about half the time people would come in and go, oh, thank you very much. I'll go do that right now. And about half of the time people would be, oh, well, and they didn't really feel like I listened. So questions are the magic answer. And I'm glad to hear that uh, training and therapy has helped you to do that as well. But I think we can all, as you said, we can all do that as leaders, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, the way the world of work has changed, obviously, with the global pandemic, but it was certainly headed in that direction before. And mental health well-being is now something that is at the forefront of what employees want and what employers are looking at. But I know, again, at least from my perspective, in the past, we've kind of tended to think of the employer-employee relationship as being strictly professional, that we deal with people when they're in the office. But I think more and more I'm reading and seeing that employees actually expect employers to be involved in their life outside of work or them as a whole person, their whole well-being. What do you think about that? Or is that what you're seeing as well? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I have seen a profound shift and we've all seen it. And, you know, I think some of the trends that we see out in the market speak to this, the great resignation, you know, those are people reevaluating what they do and why they do it. And, you know, in terms of this differentiation between professional relationship and private lives, we've seen a huge pivot there as well. Uh, life and work intersected in unprecedented ways during 
the pandemic and as we're emerging from the pandemic with people working at home and you know, there are many fun videos out there of children and pets and significant others unexpectedly popping onto our screens and uh, so like it or not there's been a shift and and with the current trends toward hybrid and for many organizations fully remote work there's no turning back so the question is really how do we become better at integrating the two and also how do we negotiate the boundaries to maintain sustainability overall so you know there's also a narrative out there on bringing your whole self to work and bringing the whole person to work. And, and one of the things that um, I think I want to highlight there is that that is not a concept that everyone can or will willingly embrace or that even feels safe for everyone. So I think one of the things in that we really have to focus on as leaders and as organizations is to create the psychological safety for people to bring as much of who they really are into the workplace as they are comfortable. It also requires cultural competency. You know, a DEIB is something that I am very passionate about. And, you know, bringing your whole self is triggering for some marginalized populations because they are margin marginalized specifically because of some of the features of their either physical ability or ethnic background. So we, I think we have a lot of learning to do and a lot of work uh, to do still at that at that front. But when we accomplish moving closer to that goalpost of people feeling safe, bringing their whole selves uh, uh, to work, the result will be deeper conversations, stronger relationships, not just amongst co-workers, but also as it relates how you serve your, your members or your clients as an organization. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a definitely a great point that you're making about psychological safety and and people feeling comfortable bringing them their whole selves to work. But we also know there are plenty of organizations out there today where the leaders don't know how to create that culture of psychological safety or that feeling for people on their teams. Do you have any recommendations how at least the progressive leaders in those organizations can begin to shift that? Yeah, I think, you know, with leaderships, uh, for leaders in particular, is uh, we, we have to lead by example. Um, that old adage of do as I say, not as I do, has never been <laughs> an effective leadership uh, a strategy. And I think as leaders, we are really called to model what healthy looks like what safe looks like. And that includes being open about uh, needing mental health support or mental health days off. It includes taking time off to take care of yourself in the various ways that you may need support. You know, it's just, we have no trouble saying, I need to go to the dentist because, you know, I need to take care of my oral health. It seems still much harder for us to say, 
I need a mental health day uh, and uh, I'm going to go see my therapist. So the stigma, I, I think we've come a long way in the last two and a half years. But again, I feel, I think we still have some work to do there. Additionally, I don't want to jump around too much, but uh, leaders need help. Mm -hmm. Our world changed on a dime. And the way we worked changed on a dime. And at the onset of COVID, we were all scared. We were scared for our lives. We were isolated in that fear. We were scared. How do we keep, you know, our organizations going? We had no idea. Many of us pivoted to fully remote literally within days. And so there was a lot of compound stress that we all experienced. And leaders in particular, particular were managing their own stress level while also trying to meet the needs of their team and to expect that leaders pivot to this new model literally within days or weeks is unrealistic. And so um, at Headspace Health, we've felt it ourselves. I felt it. And we then said, this must also be true of others. And as we iterated internally and created programs internally to support our leaders and our employees, uh, we started thinking about how can we provide this to others as well? So we've built a leadership series, a workshop series recently that, that, that we're now offering to others, in essence, sharing everything that we've learned with others as well. Well, can you share a little bit more about that leadership series and, and what your learnings have been, what you're you're helping others to learn and develop about? Certainly, certainly. And, you know, the impetus for me really was I was this was a year ago. I went to a couple of conferences and what people were really, really eager to know then was how do I build a mental health strategy for our organization? And so I was in a room with a number of L uh, HR leaders. We wanted to talk about that topic. The work had designed a workshop and we started with the question, how is everybody doing? And it was such a profound and powerful moment because many of us were in person for the first time after about uh, two years of isolation. And within minutes, there was such a huge level of intimacy in that room because we all saw mirrored in one another what we were all going through. And so there was a sense of I'm not alone. And we very quickly dove very deep in, in that workshop and afterwards. A lot of the leaders that were in the room came up to me and said, we want more of this. How can we have more of this where we come together and acknowledge what we are each carrying and struggling with? So we designed uh, mental health strategies for their organizations, but there was also a good portion of that workshop that morphed into how do we take care of one another? How do we find the resources to execute against this, these mental health strategies well? So the things that uh, as a result of those learnings at, at these two conferences that we're focusing on is um, one is a mindful leadership 
collection, and that is intended for leaders at any level to provide guidance on one, self-compassion, because that's where it starts, and then compassion for others. We say that you can't pour from, from an empty cup, so that self-care at the front end is a really important piece so that we can then extend compassion to others. The other piece of our series is how to manage healthy teams. Uh, so that is a collection that's intended for people managers across the board. And it includes topics such as how to address burnout, psychological safety. How do I check in with, with employees early so that I can catch you know any challenges that they may be facing early and then triaging early we also have single workshop sessions on self-compassion self-care and burnout management so if we're building this end-to-end -end comprehensive package and uh, trying to build in also uh, or are building in reporting capabilities to gain insights uh, about uh, these leaders organizations mm -hmm. Well, you've mentioned several things within that strategy that I want to kind of dig a little deeper into. One being burnout. I know I've read some uh, survey results recently, I believe it was from Gallup, that in terms of fatigue, exhaustion, burnout, that it's higher among leaders now than it ever has been because they were carrying a lot of this weight during the last uh, couple of years of communicating differently, doing more, trying to keep their employees safe, or at least the good leaders were. And there's been no real recognition sent their way for their efforts. And then also they're tired because the pace of change just continues to be more and more. Do you have any recommendations for both leaders for what they could do in terms of maybe their own burnout and then also how they could help prevent that or at least address it among their teams? Oh, I love that question. Thank you so much for asking that. It's such an important question. And in some ways, it's also personal, full transparency. I was at that point about a year ago. And I think, uh, you know, I was... I love my job. I love what I do. And I feel incredibly privileged to serve our community in particular. And, and I remember one morning where I just could not stop crying. And that's unusual for me because I'm a quite positive and bubbly person, but I could not stop crying. And I called my, my physician and there was a very profound and important uh, thing that my physician said to me. Yeah. She said to me, look, Desiree, I could tell you take a week off or maybe two weeks off, but that wouldn't be helpful to you. And then she said this, burnout doesn't happen in a week or two weeks. It happens over a long period of time. And in the same way, bouncing back from burnout can also not happen in a week or two weeks. It's a long-term sustained effort. And that was so such an important message for me to hear. Burnout isn't just exhaustion. It's a process that happens over time where we consistently and chronically overexert our energy reservoirs and then drain ourselves into the red zone over a period of time. So again, we can't fix it by taking a week or two off. 
we can spot it along the way. And hopefully before we crash, where you can stop crying as I did about a year ago. And again, this is somebody who loves, adores her job, but I was there. (laughs) We can spot it along the way. And it starts with cynicism, disengagement, um, anxiety, sense of anxiety, not being able to sleep at night, ruminating thoughts, you know, in the worst case scenario, it migrates into depression. And, you know, some of the quiet quitting narrative that we see out there, in my opinion, is related to people just trying to draw boundaries to prevent this further escalation of exhaustion. A sense of a lack of control is a key factor in causing burnout. And so, From where I sit, this is one opinion. (laughs) It's important to recreate a sense of certainty, predictability, and control. So one of the things, and again, this is also a direct uh, result of of my personal experience and really how desperate I I, I felt and sad uh, I felt in that moment and out of control, really, is we engaged in a partnership with UC Berkeley and kicked off a workshop series with two researchers, and we're calling it our superhuman work. And so really what that is, is an effort to be more intentional, to be more focused, to put people in a position to be drivers in their day rather than passengers, to, as an organization, be very crystal clear about what our goals and objectives are and ensure sustainability as we create those, to create space in the day-to-day for our employees to focus on their most important tasks that rather than the least important tasks that persistently interrupt our flow and, and prevent us from doing the high impact work. Think about going fully remote and email and Slack and text messages. And, you know, so there are these constant interruptions in your day that really take you away from deep thinking and deeply focused work, and then consequently doing high impact work. So we're negotiating currently, how do we want to communicate? We're building focus blocks into our days. We're doing daily meditations and mindfulness that employees can pop in and just have 10 minutes of mindfulness or five minutes of mindfulness just to ground because there's a lot that's coming at us via these electronic devices. And uh, what I call it, it it just sort of pushes us into this zone of perpetual presenteeism. I have to answer everything right away. I have to be available day and night to answer the Slack message or that text message. And that's, I think, where we need boundaries, clarity, guidance, and a shared understanding of what our rules of engagement are so that we can prevent burnout. So it's it's systemic as well. So I think it's very important organizations look at that aspect in addition to mental health support. Sure. I, I know I've told a few of my friends, I think, you know, pre-March 2020, if I wasn't burned out, I was definitely very close to the finish line. <laughs> so so a pandemic didn't necessarily, it helped that in some ways because some of the stressors or the things that were due went away, but it changed, you know, then it became a different kind of stress. So, 
you know, I know it's it's common sense to say set boundaries for when you will stop work, set boundaries when you're on vacation, don't answer emails, uh, take your notifications off your phone. And all those things can be helpful to someone who's experiencing burnout. But as you said, I think it's a much it's a much bigger challenge to address. That's a good example of it's like weight loss. You, you didn't get overweight overnight. And you also, if you have a plan to get thinner, won't get thinner overnight either. Uh, it's a process. So I appreciate you sharing that. You've mentioned mindfulness. And I think that's something that, you know, I was beginning to hear uh, more about. It was becoming kind of the darling buzzword for many people, even pre-2020. But it's certainly become something that is more focused now with the focus on well-being. Maybe uh, can you share what your definition of mindfulness is and, and some steps we can take to create a more mindful culture in our companies? Mm, yeah, another great question. Um Mindfulness. Um, I'll quote John Kabat-Zinn. Mindfulness is the awareness that rises from paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. I think that is a, 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 a sentence that really concisely ca- captures for me what it is. So this intention to focus our conscious attention on the right here right now so and what that does is it creates or cultivates an ability of being fully present and aware of where we are in that moment what we are doing and not overly reactive or overwhelmed by what's going on around us. So what we do when we're in a state of mindfulness is we become an observer of sorts. So that rather than being overwhelmed by our emotions or thoughts, which most often take us either into the past or into the future, which are scopes of life that we cannot control because one has happened and one has not yet happened and puts us into the present moment where we have a sense of control around how we show up and what that does um, I haven't mentioned this but I did for eight years I did pro bono work in prisons where we talked a lot about mindfulness is When you give yourself a moment of mindfulness where you pause, breathe, you put a pause between stimulus and response. And that allows you to respond rather than react. And it is a game changer because it allows you to live and interact with the world and the people around you in a way that is much more intentional. Hmm. So you said pause, breathe, respond Mm -hmm. instead of react? Yes, yes. So because what you do in that moment is you step out of autopilot, I'll call it. So you take a moment, you pause, you breathe, and you step out of autopilot, which is your thoughts, your automatic reactions, and you observe for a moment without judgment. You're out of autopilot. You see the moment and the situation as it is. Then, you know, you can use that moment to become aware of your breath, your body, 
take a step back, look at your thoughts even, and, you know, that are, and examine them for just a brief moment and get out of your head and see this moment and the situation as it really is. It does require that pause and that intention. And then you can expand your awareness from, you know, because in that moment you're looking inward to see what's going on with you. And then you can expand your awareness again outward to begin interacting with whatever is going on around you, but in a more intentional way. So again, step out of autopilot, pause, breathe, check in with yourself, with your body, with your breath, ground, get out of your head and autopilot, get that objective distance, take that moment, claim it. You will be infinitely more powerful in your response or yes, in your response, that's the right word, uh, in re-engaging with the world. Mm -hmm. Well, as a people leader, I mean, you've, you've worked in several progressive organizations and are, you know, leading companies in the, in the right direction. But I, I'm sure you know, and I know that there are many companies out there with leaders who didn't grow up in the culture or you know both the outside and inside of work of being mindful and thinking about well-being and whole life of employee, et cetera. How do we get those leaders to see how important this is when it's hard to quantify it in dollars and cents for them? Mm-hmm. I think in terms of how do we get leaders to recognize the importance of this? And my response to that would be practice. Expose leaders to the experience of what that looks and feels like. And I think that is one of the most powerful ways to illustrate the benefits. So again, we start every meeting with a brief meditation. And leaders can then immediately sense how it changes the tone of the meeting, the energy that people bring into the meeting, because people have an opportunity to transition from whatever they were doing before to being in this space, this context together right now. And that's incredible, incredibly powerful. You can ask people to read 17 books about it, and it will not be as powerful and compelling as the lived experience. So there's this experiential piece. <laughs> I think that's that's really super helpful. And as it relates to the bottom line, um, there are so many ways in which we are internally tracking some of the efforts that, that we're engaging in at Headspace. Um, and, you know, there's so much data that we have available as business leaders and HR leaders in particular. We can look at, at productivity uh, and absence metrics. We can look at engagement metrics through annual uh, or, or quarterly emp- uh, employee pulse surveys. We can look at uh, feedback and performance. These are all data points that currently sit in our organizations. And, and, and to start a series such as uh, a workshop on mindfulness or compassionate leadership or self-compassion and burnout, they, they will, they have for us, and I've heard, uh, heard this from many other organizations, you will see an almost immediate uh, impact on that data, which is ultimately productivity data for your organization. Mm-hmm. 
It's interesting, you know, with several of the conversations I've had recently with leaders on my podcast and also the research and information that I'm seeing on my own, it's more and more, and I assume this is a good thing, that it seems employees are expecting employers to take care of them both inside and outside of work. For example, the Workforce Attitudes Report from Headspace shared that 80% of employees believe it is the employer's responsibility to help with their mental health. And I read that and again, I guess it makes sense to me as someone who's been in the workforce a very long time, but if I'm a leader and reading that stat from your Workforce Attitudes Report, I don't know where to start. So it sounds like a recommendation might be something as simple as a a meditation at the beginning of every meeting. Yeah, I I mean, that is one way to do it. Um, And there is no question that our workplaces have pivoted from transactional to relational workplaces. And that's been accelerated in the last two and a half years. And as employers... We have to pay attention because employees now demand it. Our workforce attitudes report illustrates that very clearly. And if you don't want to be a part of the statistics of people, you know, exiting the workplace at the speed of light, then 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 these are some of the core things um, be, because our candidates ask for it. We the top of funnel in our recruiting uh, organization are pretty beefy right now because people are drawn to those benefits that they know, which they know exist within our organization because we also offer them. But where do people get started? You know, we started with talking a lot about psychological safety. And then we had six sessions just on psychological safety because, you know, in order to really talk about mental health and for people to open up about these things that they're contending with and coming together to create a really thriving workplace, you first have to ensure that there's psychological safety. So we had a six-week series and we talked about psychological safety and what does that mean? What is the organizational responsibility, leadership and manager responsibility, our individual responsibility to one another to create that workplace where we can come together as a group that feels safe, that feels like they belong, included and thrive, where we feel our needs are met. I think also providing easy access to tools and resources that meet people wherever they may be on the spectrum. Because if you have an organization of a thousand people, right, there are going to be some people who are thriving and others who are really struggling and and need support. So to have tools available uh, that allow our leaders to triage and get people the help they need when they need it is really important. So, you know, we have anything from mindfulness to psychiatric care. And so, um, you know, we can serve employees at all ends of the spectrum, uh, but we cannot expect our leaders to become therapists. But we do need to resource them to triage early and appropriately. And when you catch uh, somebody who is struggling, say, with anxiety early, they will never progress to a place where they need medication or or clinical care. Most of them won't. Never is an absolute word. I shouldn't use that. But the earlier we catch people in the process, the sooner uh, we can support and help people. That care, those tools, both for managers and employees, have to be 
easily and conveniently accessible. And they have to be culturally competent because our organizations aren't homogenous. And so to say, okay, we have one size fits all kind of an offering here that uh, will lead yield mediocre results. So, you know, those are some of the things, meditations, you know, most of the time we, we just plug into one of our uh, pre-recorded meditations and it's, it, it's become a practice now to start the meetings with, with meditation. So those are all of the, but also another thing, and then I'll stop um, is uh, help your managers with resources on how to have effective one-on-ones where yes, you talk about business progress, but it's, you don't just go through the checklist of have you done A, B, C, D, but also check in, how are you really, really? So that's the saying at Headspace, which is uh, not just how are you really? No, how are you really, really? The second really signals, I am here to hear from you. I'm really curious to hear your answer. I am interested in who you are and what you need. And my cell phone and my Slack and everything else is off because I'm here with you right now. That's really, really. So there are very simple things that we can do just to start moving the needle. Interesting. You mentioned earlier in the podcast, and I also read an article that you wrote recently where you mentioned that mental health and diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging are closely linked. Can you share a little bit more about your thoughts around DEI and B and how that links with mental health? Yeah, um, I I love your question so much. Thank you. And DEIB, no surprise, anybody who uh, follows me uh, on LinkedIn We'll see that I'm extremely passionate about that. I am myself a first uh, generation immigrant. And so aware what it means to integrate into a culture that is not natively your own. But COVID-19 did much more than increase awareness around mental health issues. It made it impossible to ignore the racial inequities in how people experience mental health concerns. There are striking racial and ethnic disparities uh, in our country when it comes to uh, mental health. Asian folks are 51% less likely to use mental health services than their white counterparts. Latin people, 25% less likely. Black people, 21%, I think, is the metric less likely. So it only makes sense that mental health strategies and DEIB strategies should support and proactively include culturally competent mental health care. Our employees are from diverse backgrounds and they can often face a lack of representation. You know, things like we read about this a lot, uh, microaggressions, unconscious bias, And there are many other stressors that impact the mental health and and psychological safety of uh, marginalized or underrepresented employees. So I I think it starts inside by diagnosing our systems where where may may there be bias and inequity? How does it show up in our organizations? 
And then we, again, need to provide training and resources to managers uh, uh, to detect and address those dynamics. And again, there's a wealth of data in almost every organization that can help us identify where those gaps are. And then to bring it back to mental health, we need to look at our benefits packages, in particular our mental health offerings, and see do they reflect cultural competency and do they address the very varying needs of our diverse employees, uh, you know, diverse employee population. Another thing I think that's really important is to provide safe affinity spaces um, to your employees, ERGs uh, at Headspace Health, opportunities to elevate voices of all cultural and ethnic backgrounds and share diverse perspectives. We do this by way of uh, heritage events that everybody's invited to, where we can learn more about one another's cultures, storytelling sessions. Uh, those sorts of things cost organizations very little, but they're incredibly impactful. To pay attention to this, including culturally offering culturally competent mental health support in the workplace is an investment that is more than worthwhile. It's one, a moral imperative, and number two, it's a business advantage without question. We don't serve a homogenous world. I said this earlier. And to serve the world effectively, we need our organization's uh, demographics to reflect the world that we serve. And in order to empower that diverse employee population to say, serve the world effectively, we have to care for them effectively. And that's how it all comes full circle. So this is a long answer to your question. But uh, uh, I, I hope that that um, was helpful. Absolutely. Yes, it's an, an important issue. And, and I think you you shared a lot of good information about how we can address that. You also mentioned, I'm, I'm shocked and saddened, I guess, at the disparities of the different groups accessing mental health when I'm sure for white Caucasian employees, it's also pretty low as well. What what can we as leaders do to help destigmatize mental health benefits in the workplace. So, you know, for years I've worked in organizations that had an EAP, but very few employees used it. And even if you shared information about it, there was a lot of, there are a lot of issues around people potentially using mental health benefits, at least in the past that were offered by the company. How can we destigmatize that for them? Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this, I think there are two ways. One is to model it. And I said this earlier, do as I do rather than do as I say, not as I do. Right. So we have to model it as leaders uh, and model what healthy looks like, uh, including taking care of your mental health and taking care of your mind. And there are some ways we can destigmatize, for example, by put, starting an all hands meeting with a meditation and have the leader kick it off. We also, we cannot over communicate on this. And that is something that we have found at, at Headspace Health. Reiterate it. And when you've said it 20 times, you've might have said it enough, but you might have say it might have to say it another 10 times. Make resources and access to mental health care really easy to find for people. Put it in a place that is so glaringly apparent that nobody will miss it. 
the the other piece uh, for us was to operationalize those practices. So I'll give you one example. Every other Friday for us, and of course, uh, this is in our DNA, but to the extent possible, uh, others can try something like this as well. But every other Friday is a mind day. So we have operationalized taking care of your mind and of your mental health. It is a Friday that's off for you to spend as you wish, whatever constitutes mental health. Self-care to you is what we invite you to do on that day. So, you know, there are ways to destigmatize by operationalizing. And, and I think that's a really important move. And there are, you know, you don't have to do a mind day every other Friday, but there are the little ways, like, like I said, our daily meditations that, that employees can drop into is, is, is another way to normalize and say, this is something that we do together because we believe in it and because we will be better together for it. And, and so then that creates a community that is uh, progressively open about these things and then also allows you to catch things much earlier in the process. The alternative is unexpected long leaves of absences, employee attrition, employee disengagement and a drop in productivity. So, you know, it's it, it's a choice that we make as organizations and leaders, but the impact is pretty immediate. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate you sharing all that. I, I, I like that mind day idea. I work for myself, so maybe I can convince me to uh, implement the every other Friday mind day. I like that. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> well, again, I appreciate all that you've shared with us. Where can people either connect with you and the things that you write or share about or any information from Headspace that you'd like to share with us that we can take to continue our learning journey to being more mindful and aware of our own well-being and that of those that work with us. Yes, absolutely. So we are, have a presence on, on social media. Uh, so wherever you you consume information, you will also find Headspace and Headspace Health there. For me personally, please connect with me on LinkedIn. I am here to network and, and to support where I can. Maybe put uh, the title of this podcast in your direct message to me and also most of my content, whether I participate in a media interview or write uh, my own piece. All of that is published on LinkedIn. And then you can also find content and resources on our website, uh, which is headspacehelp.com. Great. Well, we'll link all of that up in the show notes for people to be able to find information from Headspace as well as from you in the future. And again, I thank you for being here with me today. I thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Take good care of yourself. It's time for you to get noticed, create change and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review. 